The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. What did you just chant? Were you paying attention? What did that say? Was that about loving kindness? Are you sure? Did you see any what? You see any reference to loving kindness in there? Maybe. This is what should be done. Well, that seems to be uh, an instructive introduction. It means this is not just uh, a general teaching or a story, but it's a specific guidance about how we should live, how we should be. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. It's kind of an odd opening for an instruction because it sounds like we already know what we're doing. Why are we being given guidance? I think of that opening as meaning this is what should be done by someone who knows what's good for them. If you know what's good for them, yourself, you better do this. Let them be able and upright. Upright, living in an upright manner. You could say that's following the precepts. Not harming, not stealing. Not harming people sexually, not harming them verbally. Lying, killing. Straightforward and gentle in speech. Pretty evident what that means. Although that Instruction in and of itself could be a lifetime's work for most of us, certainly for me. Humble and not conceited. So if we know what's good for us, we won't be conceited. Watch the ego, the ego's tendencies. Contented and easily satisfied. So not grasping after things, not trying to acquire not searching for fixes, not searching for even for answers. We're easily satisfied. We're contented. Unburdened with duties and frugal in our ways, living simply. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful. In contrast to not proud and demanding in nature. So it seems that those those two phrases are, are in in response to each other, peaceful and calm, okay, wise and skillful. It's interesting that we're being told we should be wise. How do I be wise? I don't know. You tell me, right? That's why I'm studying this stuff. Not proud and demanding in nature. Once again, we're reminded not to... uh, to feed the ego, humble and not conceited and not proud and demanding, not having expectations. So let them, those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace, not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. We're supposed to be wise, but we're also supposed to consult with the wise. A little confusing. 
So we've gotten this far into the sutta, at least a quarter of the way, maybe further. There hasn't been any reference to love or kindness or anything even in that arena. So what are, what are we talking about here? If you are familiar with the uh, Eightfold Path, uh, the Buddha's really instruction for how to live, and that it's uh, talked about as having three elements, three major elements, sila, samadhi, panya. Sila is morality or ethics, living with integrity. Samadhi is training the mind, meditation, concentration, mindfulness. And panya is wisdom or insight. So what we're apparently talking about here for this entire opening, for this sutta, the Buddha's words on loving kindness, is we're talking about sila. We're talking about the foundation of practice. What we're being told is that before you can even attempt to love people in a skillful way, you must Learn to live skillfully, wisely. Follow the precepts. Not inflate your ego. Not grasp after possessions. Live simply. All of this is foundation. You know, and I think many of us, certainly I came to meditation expecting to have some revelatory experience through uh, insight and enlightenment and really wasn't particularly interested in changing the way I behaved. Um, but it turns out that uh, the way we behave is actually foundational to our spiritual development. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who, whose book, The Noble Eightfold Path, <laughs> is really one of the great, let's uh, uh, say, you know, word for word, page for page, whatever. It's the most uh, richest piece of dharma I've ever read. It says, that the, the sila elements of the path, which uh, technically are right speech, right action, and right livelihood, but really have a broader meaning. It says, though these principles restrain moral actions and promote good conduct, their ultimate purpose is not so much ethical as spiritual. So sila, as part of the Eightfold Path, isn't so much about ethics or even about karma, about creating good karma in our life, good circumstances in our life, but they are spiritual. This is what he says. They are not prescribed merely as guides to action, but as aids to mental purification. This is the purpose of sila on the Eightfold Path. Yes, the Buddha talks a great deal about karma, about living skillfully and not harming others so that uh, people, you know, communities can live in harmony so that our own hearts can be at ease. But ultimately, the goal of that is not just to get along or to have uh, good circumstances in our life, but to purify our mind. Because if we live unskillfully, Unwisely, if we live selfishly, without contentment, if we are burdened with duties and not frugal, 
if we are not peaceful, if we are busy and disturbed, then the mind can't be purified. It can't find peace. He says, in the special context of the Noble Eightfold Path, ethical principles are subordinate to the path's governing goal, final deliverance from suffering. So whereas in you know, all religions we see these, these precepts, these basic guidelines, in, in Buddhism they are seen as something more than just about behavior and, and uh, social harmony, but about our own transformation. They lay the foundation for it. Now, I, I, I bring that up because I think it's a point that's often missed in, in Western Dharma. You know, Western Dharma does emphasize meditation and insight, not so much uh, uh, the sila elements. So now we've gotten to this point. Now what, now what does the Buddha say? Well, he says, wishing in gladness and in safety may all beings be at ease. We finally met up <laughs> with loving kindness. And in this simple phrase, uh, it, it contains the, the typical phrases of may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you be safe. Happiness, gladness, ease, peace, and safety. And that's pretty much the instruction for your, med- for your loving kindness practice. Uh, then he just makes a long list of the different people so that you're clear that when he says all beings, he means all beings. Yeah. And we find that in the suttas there's a lot of repetition and redundancy. Uh, you know, I think they had more time in those days to just, uh, you know, uh, they weren't in such a hurry. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born. And then we close up this section by repeating, may all beings be at ease. So just a couple comments about this section. First of all, uh, he makes a point of, you know, whether they are weak or strong, great or mighty, I think you know there's a tendency, or let, let's say it's easy to kind of send loving kindness or compassion to the weak, you know, those who we know are suffering, but maybe not so easy to send it to the great, or particularly the mighty, or the wealthy, <laughs> or the powerful. You know, oftentimes there's a kind of sense, well, what do they need it for? They've already got it all, right? Of course, that's just falling into a materialist view. I was having dinner with some friends, and one colleague of my wife's who's not a Buddhist practitioner, and I said something about, you know, having compassion for billionaires, and she was not happy with that. She didn't think that was a good idea at all. She didn't think there was any reason to have compassion for billionaires. As though... Someone's wealth uh, protected them from suffering. That's the delusion of our system, of our culture, <laughs> that you can somehow get something that's going to protect you from pain. 
that's going to protect you from life, as though your children still can't get sick and your partner still can't die, uh, or that you can't still die. I do find this particular phrase, the, the greater the mighty, medium, short, or small, I feel like we're being measured for our t-shirt sizes. I'm not sure <laughs> why <laughs> it's sort of all sizes. The, apparently, from my discussions with some of the more knowledgeable uh, Buddhists and, and monastics, the born and the, those to be born doesn't mean everybody that's going to be born, but those who are in, in utero, apparently. Those living near and far away. The seen and the unseen is an interesting one. You know? Does that just mean like people that are outside that I can't see? Or does it mean that there are, as we see in the suttas, uh, beings that we can't see with our eyes? I don't know. I don't know if it's important, but it's everybody, you know. So now we shift gears. We go into a whole other section of the sutta, a whole other um, kind of angle. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. So one of the things that I find very interesting about the way the Buddha teaches is how much he uses the negative to express an idea. So we're all familiar with this idea of not-self. You know. uh, but he often, instead of talking about love or compassion, he often talks about non-ill will. And it's kind of a, it's not a particularly uh, poetic turn of phrase, non-ill will. Uh, but it points to something. You know, you could say, well, isn't that the same as love? Well, you know, when we, when we think about the feeling of love, you know, obviously that's directed, you know, normally when it's not, when we're not making a special effort, normally it's directed towards people that we care about. Non-ill will, on the other hand, of course, is directed towards people towards whom we have ill will. We're trying not to have it. We're kind of withdrawing it. Well, a couple things to say about that. Uh, first of all, non-ill will expresses something, expresses this idea in a way that's in harmony with the Buddha's basic teaching, which is that freedom comes from letting go. Freedom d doesn't come from acquiring more love, but from letting go of hate we could say. I mean, if if the, the principles of the Four Noble Truths, that suffering comes from tr grasping, then it, he's, he's, using, he's teaching the same thing by talking about non-ill will. He's teaching letting go. And I would say that it's harder to not hate the people we hate than it is to love the people we love. I don't know if that makes any sense, but if we can just, but what I think we're really getting at this idea is that when we let go of ill will, what's there naturally 
is love, is care. So we don't have to import love or cultivate love necessarily. Not that that's not a valuable thing to do, to cultivate that, but you know, this one of the things that very distinctive about Buddhist teachings is the idea that we are all already okay. I'm not going to say we're all perfect, because it's, I don't know what that would mean, but that we're already okay, and that the, the thing that gets, the problem isn't that we need to make ourselves better, but rather let go of the things that obscure that okayness, that obscure happiness, that obscure love. So that's why in meditation, most of what we're doing is letting go. And typically, you know, a lot of what we're letting go of is the five hindrances, right? Desire, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, but especially desire and aversion. And that's what we're talking about here, right? We're talking about letting go of aversion. And that if, if you're have practiced to some uh, degree, which I know many of you have, you know that when you have those moments when the five hindrances fall away, it's not that you're just sitting there in this kind of blank space, oh, there's no hindrances. It's actually, it's a beautiful moment. It's a feeling of lightness and freedom and openness and connection and, dare I say, love. Uh, Might not manifest as something, you know, uh, that looks uh, exotic or, or um, you know, exciting, but it tends to be a, a, an amazing feeling of, of presence. And as I say, that doesn't happen because we've acquired something. It's not that we've gotten something. It's that we've let go. So, so I would say that if, if we... If we want to work at this practice of the Buddha's teaching on loving kindness, that if we simply look at letting go of those moments of ill will arising, that you'll find a tremendous amount of freedom just in that, of tremendous lightness that comes just with that letting go. Okay, now now we come to the part of the sutta that's... uh, the, probably the most famous part, and probably the most poetic as well, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. So we take this to mean that what, if we're asking the question, what does the Buddha mean by metta, by loving kindness, we can say he means something like the love of a mother, which sounds very sweet. But if we look closely at what he's saying, he's not talking about anything sweet. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, that's a pretty strong image. And it suggests that the love of a mother isn't a huggy, kissy, kind of, you're so cute kind of love, but a fierce love, and a love that's concerned with protection and care, much more than affection. It's not describing love as affection, which is kind of how we understand that word in our language, and what I think causes a lot of confusion 
around the practice of loving kindness, particularly practicing loving kindness for yourself. If you're supposed to like yourself, that can be difficult. But what about protecting yourself? Don't you always try to protect yourself if you're in any kind of danger? You go, oh, bring it on. Oh, okay. Oh, you've got a knife? Oh, here. You know, I'm soft around here. <laughs> this, is, this would be a good place. No. <laughs> you know, you protect yourself, right? So even as a mother protects with her life her child. So then this really does uh, put forth to us this question of what, what the Buddha means by love. And I think it's a really critical question. Because as I say, I think there's a lot of confusion about it. So to love yourself, as we're told to do. It, the Buddha doesn't say anything about that in here, by the way. And he, he ra- rarely says anything about loving yourself. Mostly, I think, because it never occurred to him that people wouldn't love themselves. But what, what I think he means by love isn't affection, but, but care and protection. And, and one of my purposes in working with this material in this this is the book that I've written that, that's exploring this topic, living kindness. One of my goals in writing this book is to help people to find an, uh, an easier way, uh, an accessible way to connect with some of these ideas that can seem, oh, I don't know if I can do that. And to suggest, as I was talking about this afternoon, that loving yourself doesn't mean that you're praising yourself and thinking what a great person you are, or that you have to qualify for love, or you've got to you know, have a love resume. You know. But rather that loving yourself means that you, when you're hungry, you eat. When you're tired, you rest. When you're sad, you look for someone to cheer you up. When you are agitated, you come to common ground to meditate. You, know, you take care of yourself. Right? And most of us do that. I mean, there are, all, there are times, and certainly as a recovering addict and alcoholic, you know, a lot of my behavior in those days was not loving towards myself. Uh, and I would never have thought of it in those terms, but looking back, I can see, oh yeah, that, that was not kind, the way I treated myself. But I don't, I'm not sure I like myself any more now than I did then. You know, it's, it's too complicated trying, you know, uh, trying to figure out if we're, you know, I'm a, you're a good person or a bad person. I don't know. Do people like me? You know, it's not what this is about. You know, it's not, I mean, that's another issue. You know, <laughs> deal with, with your therapist on that issue. But in the Buddhist center, you know, just take, take care of yourself. Take care of others. Take care of the earth. You know, that's love, I think. I think that's what the Buddha is talking about when he's talking about love, that he's talking about care and protection. So we're meant to cherish all living beings. So my French study such as it was so long ago. In French, share means dear, right? To hold you dear. 
so again, I feel like that's more about caring. In any case, we move now to another, whole other shift. So with the boundless heart, so we've started to open something up here. Uh, we, it, it, one should cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded. I have these little Qigong moves that I do with this. Right? <laughs> upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths. Well, there's no people involved in this at all now, right? We've gone beyond people. Now we're actually, I would say we're radiating kindness to the, the earth and the planet, upwards to the skies. And in fact, you know, my, my last chapter is about loving kindness for the earth and saying, you know, our, our planet really needs our love because the skies are being fouled. We have fouled the skies. We have fouled the earth. We have fouled the waters. So radiating kindness and taking care of the skies and the earth. Um, I find that, uh, you know, a, a inspiring. But uh, Venerable Analia, the great uh, translator, modern translator of the Pali Canon, says the Buddha really didn't teach loving kindness towards individuals. It's, whenever you read about it in the suttas, it's radiating. There, there's various places where it talks about in the ten directions. You know, I'm, I'm not sure what they all are. There's east, west, south, north, up, down, over and out, <laughs> somewhere. I don't know. There's some kind of some other direction. I'm not sure about. But but it's it's this sense of radiating, and that's because partly why that is is that radiating is actually a meditation practice in which one gets outside of this self-view and outside of the limited sense of, of, of body here. And, that, and we start to open mind to a broader kind of realm called big mind. Call it. And, uh, and it, it's a really... Uh, uh, Analio's book, uh, Compassion and Emptiness in Early Buddhist Teachings, um, talks about this, about looking for that space, looking for emptiness, and, and keeping this very open, spacious awareness. Because um, we tend to you know, look at all the, the objects and the density, and, and also in the same way that we look at all the problems in our mind and all our worries, and kind of and this idea like, oh, well, if things are more spacious, you know, there's problems, but they're, they're only like hanging around here. And there's all this other space, like don't obsess with this one little area of your experience. So outwards and unbounded. And now, freed from hatred and ill will. So this is kind of wrapping that up again, this non-ill will. And now we drop into a seemingly very mundane, all of a sudden it's just, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. So these are the four postures. You know, now we're getting actually uh, echoes of the four foundations of mindfulness when the Buddha te- teaches the practices of, of mindfulness of breath and feeling and mind. 
standing, walking, seated, lying down. He says we should practice mindfulness in all those postures. And any other postures, you don't have to practice mindfulness in. So. Free from drowsiness. It just throws that in. Just don't fall asleep, okay? It just seems odd. It just, to me, the, it's, you know, it goes from these sort of poetic radiating kindness and don't fall asleep. <laughs> okay, all right. Like, what? What did I do? I know, it's kind of like he caught you, right? One should sustain this recollection. So sustain this recollection, actually, recollection is a translation of, pol- of the, the Pali word sati, which we usually translate as mindfulness. So we could say we should sustain our mindfulness. So it turns out that, you know, although for a long time mindfulness and loving kindness have been taught as separate practices, we see that in the sutta they're actually blended together. How can you really be loving without being mindful, right? And if you're being mindful without being loving, it's kind of turns into this kind of struggle. Uh, and so, uh, you know, even my instruction on mindfulness now has become much more informed with, uh, with loving kindness, with the attitude of uh, acceptance and openness. But we should sustain this recollection of love. We should carry love with us everywhere, right? Non-ill will. We should pay attention to this. Sustain this recollection. And this is said to be the sublime abiding, back into this very poetic, beautiful language, um, which has resonance with uh, the broader term I'm sure many of you are familiar with, Brahma Viharas. So the Brahma Viharas are these four, the, the four highest emotions, love, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity, that are often taught as a, as a grouping and sometimes metta or metta practice is shorthand for actually all four Brahmaviharas. Sometimes people use it in that way. And in a way, I don't know how the sutta was constructed, but the, the change that happens in the last four lines is so abrupt that it feels as if this point, this is said to be the sublime abiding, is the end of something. Because the next four lines, by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. This is clearly, if you've studied suttas at all, a reference to the stages of enlightenment in the Theravadan tradition, in the Pali Ken, the four stages of enlightenment that involve letting go of fixed views, that involve uh, letting go of sense desires, and finally involve not continually being reborn and ending the cycle of samsara. But it kind of comes as a shock in a way when we're, as we're reading this sutta, you know, uh, sustain this recollection, sublime abiding, and all of a sudden is not born again into this world. It's kind of, what? It, it kind of, there's something sudden and abrupt about it to me. Um, but again, it's, it's referring to something completely... It's, it's, what it's saying is that this path of loving-kindness actually can be a path to enlightenment. So, for what it's worth, if that's something you're looking for. Um, fixed views. 
Yeah, we can see how being stuck in your view, in your belief system, how that traps us, right? We all have our views. We all have our fixed views. But the, the depth or the rigidity of fixedness is really parallel to the depth of our suffering. This is uh, where so much struggle comes. A pure-hearted one really refers back again to the opening, to the being able and upright, and all those, these uh, characteristics. Having clarity of vision, uh, we have the word vipassana, to see clearly. So this means having insight, understanding the truth, understanding the dharma, you know, which is cultivated through samadhi, the, the second element of the, the sila samadhi panya. Being freed from all sense desires. As we say in AA, what in order? I can't go through with it. I mean, being freed from all sense desires, that's a pretty high bar. And and again, in the traditional teachings, that's something that comes only at the very end. So don't get yourself bothered if you think, oh, I still have sense desires. Like, you know, that's a long, long way off for most of us. But, you know, coming back to the reality of our lives, just understanding, as we do, that you know, being driven by sense desires, trying to co- constantly satisfy our cravings, is just fruitless. You know, it doesn't work. And as much as we can kind of not be trapped in that cycle, uh, you know, is the degree that we're free. And is not born again into this world. Again, there's a technical meaning of this in terms of reincarnation, but when we can think about it just in terms of being trapped in ego, in creating self, in, in uh, you know, just being in this cycle of craving, then, then we can think of each moment that we're kind of creating a self and creating ourselves and just stop doing that, you know, just letting go of that, uh, birthing ourselves each moment. So it's really a, a remarkable and fascinating piece of literature and uh, apparently the most popular uh, sutta in, in Theravadan Asia uh, for, for good reason. Uh, but as with you know, many suttas, we can just take these few words and get so much from them. If you've ever seen one of the collections of suttas, they these big, thick books, a thousand pages, you know, hundreds of suttas. And it can be intimidating to think, oh, how am I supposed to study all of those? And, and you know, most of us are not going to study all of them. And the fact is you don't have to study all of them. You study a few in depth, and you, and you, get, the, you get the gist, and you, and you get so much. They're so rich. Um, and, and this is how I think they should be approached, it's just as very uh, precious uh, pieces of literature to be to be worked over and examined and reflected upon, and to see everything that we can gain from a simple simple teaching. So um, we have some time if people want to ask questions or make comments. Um, be happy to hear from you. It has to do with belief. Like, it, it seems like this is the kind of sutta that asks you to believe it. 
to take it to heart, to sort of um, let it hit the heart and to uh, give rise to a kind of humility and love. And But we're kind of a practice that doesn't, that teaches uh, no fixed views. And so I'm just wondering how you square um, this kind of heart-centered belief with... Um, does it does it just mean that loving kindness looks different in every moment? But how do you do that? How do you square that with no fixed views? I I just don't read it like that, you know. Um, I I guess. Uh, first of all, it makes so much sense to me that I don't feel like I'm being asked to believe in something that's not self-evident. Um, and because I trust the Buddha, I'm mostly interested in knowing what he had to say <laughs> rather than uh, I don't know, not that you're necessarily suggesting that this, but I'm, I'm not kind of looking at it going, I don't know if I want to believe this or take this on. I, I see it as, um, you know, an instructional piece that is giving me guidance and really making things clear. You know, there's the phrase that shows up in a lot of the suttas where, where when somebody hears the Buddha for the first time, they say to him, uh, you've made everything clear for me. Uh, and, and there's a few like pat phrases, sort of set phrases. And that's the way this is for me, that I read this and I go, well, okay, thank you, you've really clarified things for me. So I don't see it as a, a beliefs or um, I, uh, it just resonates for me and it, it, not just with my heart, but with my experience, you know that, you know, straightforward and gentle in speech, I know, you know, humble and not conceited. Yes, yes, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. Right, right. You know, I'm, I'm just kind of going, yes, thank you for clarifying all that because all that makes so much sense to me. And as a mother protects with her life, oh, that's such a perfect example for me of, of love, you know, and, and what that means. And as I say, you know, as I came to see that as being about protection and care, Rather than affection, that was very clarifying for me. So, yeah, where, where do you, where do you, it sounds, I mean, where do you have that sense? And what, in which words kind of strike you in that way? It just seems like a belief, a faith. What, what, it, like what, what to put what, your faith what, in and what to believe. What, which, just point to specific words for me. That, that seem like faith? Yeah. Even as a mother protects with her life. Or, um, you should be this. Uh, what you should do, um, gentle and kind in speech, right. and all those things. Those are beliefs. Okay. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah. For me, it's doesn't strike me that I can see what you mean. I mean, as a mother protects with her child, so with the boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings? Saying this is what you should do, and so I look at that and I think, okay. What he's saying is that I should really care about people. 
well, I agree, you know, <laughs> rather than, than, oh, I, I don't, I never thought of that, or I, it's just that he puts it in a way that's, you know, okay, you know, I feel the same way, and it kind of, for me, it's more like reassuring to have the Buddha say something that resonates for me, like, yes, because I, and, and I'll say that long before I ever saw this sutta, through my own meditation practice, I had the experience of really wanting to cherish all living beings, you know, just through meditating for long, you know, on long retreats, just opening up in a way that I just, my heart would just open and I just would feel this love for life, for living beings. And so reading this, I think, oh, right, that, that, natural opening that happened to me through my practice is exactly what the Buddha is pointing us to towards. So it doesn't, again, feel to me like I'm being, oh, you better do this, or you have to follow this, you have to believe me that this is the right thing to do. I already believe it. So for me, it's much more just reinforcing what I already believe. But, you know, I would say if there's a belief part, it's do I believe in reincarnation, you know? Uh, is not born again into this world, and there I'm like, I I have I have trouble with that idea. Um, so so what I do with that is I don't believe and I don't not believe. I just don't know. So I figure if, and the Buddha actually says at times, you don't have to believe in reincarnation to follow this path. You know. I don't know if you've heard that teaching, but you know it's something he said. That he says it's true. You, there is such a thing as reincarnation, but you don't have to believe it. You know, so I'm glad that he said that. <laughs> There's a hand way in the back. I, uh, you said that. Um the, the, the Buddha um, doesn't talk about loving yourself and that you didn't think he ta- thought people wouldn't love themselves. I was uh-huh. curious where you were coming from with that. <laughs> well, it's just, I mean, where I'm coming from in terms of saying that is based on trying to find somewhere in the suttas where he said you should, that, uh, where he was concerned about people not loving themselves. And I've, I've brought this up with Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, I think it was Bhikkhu Bodhi, yeah, um, who was the, one of the great translators. And I said, you know, as I was working on the book, I, I asked him, I wrote him an email and said, you know, we have this issue in our culture of people like self-hatred and people struggling. And, and I, I don't see anything where the Buddha addresses self-hatred. And he said, well, there's one sutta in which he talks about the five hindrances and the second hindrance is aversion. And he says, and in that sutta, he talks about aversion for yourself, or maybe not even self. It, it, it's not, you know, but aversion towards thoughts or feelings. And, and I thought, if Bhikkhu Bodhi, who translated all this stuff, can only point to one little spot where maybe he was talking about that, then it doesn't seem like it was a big issue. But so where, but where we see something... Uh, the opposite of that is one of the suttas that I addressed in one of the, my early chapters here where uh, there's 
Queen Malika and King Pasnati, who were devotees of the Buddha. And Queen Malika, King Pasnati says to Queen Malika, is there anyone in the world that you hold more dear than yourself? Seems kind of like a setup when the king asks you, you know, <laughs> anybody you like more than yourself? <laughs> well, Queen Malika, who's very clear, and she's actually uh, a more advanced spiritual practitioner than her husband, she says, no, there's nobody that I hold more dear than myself. And what about you, King Pasanati? Is there anyone that you hold more dear than yourself? And King Pasanati says, no, there's no one that I hold more dear than myself. So there's no reference to this setup that I think is in there. It's, that's just me you know, projecting. But So they, take, they go to the Buddha and tell him their conclusion. And the Buddha says, that's very good. He said, everyone holds themselves dear. And anyone who holds themselves dear should never harm another. So he adds on this idea, right, that... If you hold yourself dear, and you know, because you know other people hold themselves dear, you shouldn't harm them, which is kind of a roundabout way of getting to the golden rule, right? But the, the, there's no reference to, he doesn't say, if you don't hold yourself dear, you will harm people. But we could say that, you know, the people who, the, the current phrase, Hurt people hurt people, right? It's kind of the flip of this, right? If you hold yourself dear, then you will not harm another. If you don't hold yourself dear, you likely will. But as I say, he doesn't really talk about that. He just says everybody holds themselves dear. Well, again, in our culture, people would go, really? They do? Like, and that's why it made me question what he was talking about that he's not talking about affection or liking yourself, but he's talking about how people protect themselves and take care of themselves in fundamental ways. Uh, but, but yeah, it doesn't seem that, uh, you know, the, the understanding of most contemporary Western Dharma teachers, I believe, because I can't speak for all of them and us. But my sense is that most of us have a sense that our culture is somewhat uniquely stuck in self-hatred. And that most cultures, even contemporary Asian culture, that you know, this is kind of an alien concept, hating yourself. Uh, I'm sure it's not entirely, but... Uh, that it, and that, and that, but nonetheless, that kind of it's not really a thing in in Buddhist times. Now, that may be, maybe it was something that was, you know, kind of not looked at. I don't know, but but that's that's the sense that we get from from reading the suttas. Hi. Um. One of the things that really struck me, and I can't remember exactly what you said, but it was something like um, like morality purifies the mind. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that really struck me because I have, 
never really been actively, I mean, like in small ways, yeah, but it's it's hard for me to like actively try to be moral, but only when I'm like, um, like in a really deep state of peace, do those things come out like generosity, non-harming, you know, meta. And, but what you, what you said really resonated with me. So I'm just curious how you would suggest exploring that, like, and I can just kind of see myself like, oh, if I try to do this, (laughs) then I'll be like gripping to it. So I'm just kind of curious, like how to explore that. Well, Well, yeah, once again, it's not about adopting new behaviors. I mean, for me, as a recovering alcoholic and addict, you know, the fundamental thing I needed to do was stop, stop drinking and using, and that solved a lot of the problems. And what, you know, the fifth precept, which is the one on using intoxicants, is the only one of the five precepts that's considered not to be a moral injunction. It, uh, killing, stealing, harming sexually, and harming verbally and lying are considered, you know, karmically immoral. They have an inherently immoral effect, painful, you know, destructive effect. Using intoxicants isn't inherently destructive, but the tendency is that one uses intoxicants, one breaks the other four precepts. So, um, so it simplified things for me, because I didn't tend to get violent and steal and harm people in these different ways when I was intoxicated. So uh, for me, it wasn't about, oh, I'm going to take on these new behaviors and be a goody-goody, like be extra generous and be extra kind. It's not about that to me. It's, I mean, I mean, that's great, and certainly those qualities, you know, hopefully grow, but um, just keeping, you know, just being really honest, <laughs> right? Whatever, what that means, what does that mean, you know? It's being skill, really skillful with speech, being really skillful around work and money, being really skillful around relationships, you know, I mean, there's a lot of work to be done around all that. And it's, again, yeah, it's not about sort of trying to be a good little Buddhist, but it's trying to live, the way I think of it is living in harmony with people and with karma. So um, I don't know if you're imagine, thinking of it as something more grandiose than that. Uh, like, you know, have you been robbing banks? Or <laughs> need to stop importing cocaine? Uh, no, no, but I mean, like, just <laughs> just for like an example. Okay. I mean, like, I really let's get down to the juices. yeah, <laughs> yeah, like a daily example. Okay. Um, like, you know, I have like this sugar addiction, and and so if I if I really was like okay, you're not having sugar today or something like that. Or like, let's try not to have sugar, sweetie. Does that intoxicate you? Well, kind of, mm. yeah. I mean, I get cranky and... <laughs> yeah. Um, but if I... Yeah, like... we would kick you out of an AA meeting so fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, so... like, get a, get a so problem. Like, get so a real... I... Come back when you have a real problem. <laughs> so, so if I tried not to have sugar... Like, that wouldn't really help me. But 
in if I'm right. in a peaceful state and you don't crave sugar. Right. Right. So like yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah. Just do that. <laughs> it's a lot easier. Peaceful and calm and wise and skillful. No, right. Well, you know, part of what you're talking about is that it works both ways. That is to say, as we cultivate peace and we cultivate these kind of spiritual qualities, the samadhi, then the sila tends to improve as well. It, it's not a linear thing. Okay, first get your sila perfect and then you can meditate. But, yeah, as, when you're more peaceful, you're not, you don't fall into your negative habits. You know, when you're really tired or agitated or stressed out, then it's like, oh, come home and, you know, delve into the chocolate chip, you know. Um, and so, yeah, the, it, works, it works both ways. And, and the third piece, the, the insight and wisdom, that also supports the other two. So they, it's a... It's a web. It's not a linear process. So as you get insight, you see, oh, wow, like when I get tired, I get really craving sugar. Like I should get more rest or, or even I'm tired and I'm craving sugar. Oh, I'm just seeing that that's happening. You know, I'll have, uh, you know, a piece of toast or, you know, whatever. Uh, Gluten-free, of course, you know. <laughs> so... I mean, if we're being purists. You know. uh, so, yeah, it's... Uh, but as we say in AA, progress, not perfection. So It looks like we've reached the uh, time limit of the evening, and I, I don't like to keep people late in class. So. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.